Hey, Undetermined listeners. Dennis Cooper here, executive producer of Undetermined and host of the podcast Culpable. I wanted to let you know about an exciting update with Culpable that I think you'll be interested to hear. In 2019, I took a long-form, investigative approach covering the case of Christian Andriacchio, a young man who was shot and killed inside his apartment under mysterious circumstances. In 2022, I did a deep dive into another case, the case of Brittany Stikes, a young, pregnant mother who was gunned down while driving on her local highway. Now, we're changing things up a little, with a new spin on the series. Over the next six weeks, I'll be highlighting six different cases to help give more victims and their families a voice in their fight for justice. We're going to share with you the first episode in a two-part case review of Andrew Thomas Wall, a 26-year-old who was found dead from an overdose, although several questions surrounding his death remain. As you listen to this episode, search Culpable in your podcast app and follow the show so you can listen to part two of Andrew's case review, which is available now, and get new episodes as they release each Friday. If you want ad-free listening and early access to next week's episode, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on Apple Podcasts or at tenderfootplus.com. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals interviewed and participating in the show and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV or Resonate Originals. All individuals described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matter such as violence, drug use, and other graphic descriptions, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, TikTok. We see all your comments. We thank you so much. We are so grateful for all of your support. Justice for Andrew Thomas Wall. All right, this is part two of Andrew Thomas Wall's update on his case. The detectives have assured us that the case remains open and that they are working on it. This is coming from us at Andrew Wall's home base. Say hello, everybody, and thank you so much. The person you just heard is Brianna Sturm, longtime friend to our victim in this story, 26-year-old Andrew Thomas Wall. In the spring of 2023, I stumbled on a TikTok video that she had posted. Well, technically my wife shared it with me. I should confess, as a millennial trying his best to stay with the times, I do not actually have a TikTok account. But don't think for a second that I underestimate its power. After all, it's how Andrew's story reached me. Thanks in part to some savvy work from his good friend Bree, as we'll call her. Like many grieving loved ones out there, Bree has the passion and the voice to keep Andrew's name alive. I'm not worried about that for a second. But as I spied on her TikTok account, listening to updates day by day, scouring over the comments and engagement from followers, watching a GoFundMe crawl towards its goal, I realized that these people have a story worth telling. They just need people to hear it. So we reached out to Bree, and then shortly after making contact, we were introduced to Andrew's parents, Bill and Sheila Wall. We're happy that you reached out to us, so, and we're hoping that, that you can now bring some light you know, not just justice, but answers. I already knew a lot about Andrew's case, a couple weeks worth of TikTok videos, that is. So in a way, I felt I knew what I was getting into. But after spending time with the walls in the comfort of their home, I learned there was so much more to the story which I've been closely following. 
A story about loss and heartache, yes, but also a story that has given me a deeper understanding of the word culpable. I've been told that Andrew probably wouldn't have wanted me to make this podcast about him, but in his desire to help others and educate the world, he would have gladly accepted it. This is a culpable case review. Andrew Thomas Wall, part one. I didn't know where you wanted to set up. Like, oh, yeah, this is fine. Like, downstairs. Downstairs. This is Bill and Sheila Wall, Andrew's parents. They've invited me and a couple of our producers to their Ohio home to learn more about Andrew and the investigation into his puzzling death. While there's a lot I could say about these wonderful people I had the pleasure of meeting, all I'll say for now is the first thing that stuck out to me, and that is that their pain and their grief is palpable. It's fresh, you could say. I gathered that from a brief introductory phone call. Unlike the cases I've covered in the past, Andrew's passing was very recent. He was found dead in his apartment on January 3rd, 2023, from an apparent drug overdose. But that's just a fraction of the story. I wanted to know more. So flash forward a few months, and here we are, standing in the Wall family home, setting up equipment, and exchanging pleasantries with mom and dad. Do you want to check out the basement first, or do you want to... Yeah, yeah you... Is this... Yeah, yeah, you don't have to connect anything? Yeah, not why not? Yep. But before sitting down for an interview, the Walls ask if we'd like to head down to their basement for a moment, and we happily oblige. That's nice to it's always cold down here, too, which is really nice in the summer. So I already had this done, but I added to it, and then this is all Andrew. As I'd sort of suspected, the reason for the basement tour was not to show off renovations or anything, though we did speak in depth about their recently installed stone flooring. Pretty cool, I gotta say. No, the reason Sheila encouraged us to start downstairs was because since Andrew's passing, she's taken a large section of the basement and used it to memorialize him, a catch-all for Andrew anything to keep his memory alive. There's artwork from over the years, family pictures, and all of his personal belongings are displayed here as well. Though Bill and Sheila tell me there weren't many items they could take from his apartment. More on that later. These are the shoes he was wearing the last time I saw him, and the hat. Yeah, the only things that were his, were his sunglasses. And this that he had given his sister she brought over and then some of his art when he was little that's his piano over there yeah he was, oh he was so gifted like he played on our niece's wedding when he was 10 he broke these oh, for us wow. and leave little hearing them boast about just how good of a pianist Andrew was we had to ask if there was any way we could hear it an old video or recording but Bill was already ahead of us remote in hand pulling up YouTube on the TV and we quickly realized that yeah he was that good I usually hear him around four. He kind of, he didn't play as much for us. Um, 
but I got him a keyboard with the headphones, and mm-hmm. so he would play. He had it in his, his apartment, yeah. and he would play for himself and make his own music and just kind of... <sighs> Last time we were down here, um, we were singing karaoke, and Bill comes down and is like, what are you guys doing? Because I was making him sing The Carpenters mm-hmm. and <laughs> Barry Manilow. <laughs> <laughs> he was going right along with it. I, you know, just put the words up for him. <laughs> yeah, so that was pretty neat. Sheila had the pleasure of seeing Andrew perform outside the home as well. For years, she provided part-time care for elderly patients. She tells us that Andrew loved coming to the rehab facility she frequented to play music for the folks there. Not his go-to set or anything, but oldies from sheet music given to him. He gave the people what they wanted. Just that giver, and he had such such a connection to give, give, give back, and just he was very spiritual, and just he was just a sweetheart. Free spirit, totally. Yeah, yeah. He loved like the galaxy and planets and the universe and anything to do with the stars, and he was extremely brilliant, uh, like rocket science smart. I look over and see that Bill, again, is ahead of the pack. Holding his phone, he starts playing a recording for us, taken one late night during a deep conversation with Andrew. The reason for the recording? He knew he'd need to listen back to it if he really wanted to understand it all. He didn't know I was taping this. This was 2020. literal something that runs on chaos. It literally runs... He's telling me about the universe. ...destruction. Like, that's what it does. It runs on this. That's how it fuels itself. Like, first of all, we're about to destroy our planet. Our planet is dying. It is on... I mean, he loved to talk and, and discuss and have conversation and you know, just sitting around and hanging out, you know, to all hours. And, you know, I'm falling asleep. <laughs> yeah, the deeper the better. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's like, dude, yeah. Just take a, a bottle of wine. <laughs> I can't do <play, laughs> this. It's like... It's bedtime. (laughs) As the walls continue sharing memories of Andrew, I start to glance back towards the wall of items that Sheila had first introduced to us when we entered the basement. This time, something catches my eye that I missed before. I believe it's an item I'd heard about in one of Bree's TikTok videos. A handwritten note, printer paper size, kept in a plastic sleeve to protect its already withered edges and running ink. It must be important. I gesture to Sheila, and she picks it up from the table, removing it from its sleeve. Oh, and then this is a letter he wrote. That was, I think the police must have found it and got out of the garbage can. So we knew there was a second person involved. You said you got found that in the garbage can? Um, I think the police found it in the garbage can because it was like all crumpled up, but it was on his counter. Kind of afraid to touch it. Yeah. Yeah. As I mentioned, some of the ink was water damaged along the right side of the paper. But as far as I can discern, the note reads, D, me and Jean went to hustle. We'll be gone for 30 to 40 minutes. There's coffee and a vitamin C drink to help you feel better. You're more than welcome to stay the night if you like. We love you and we'll see you soon. Your stuff will be placed on the table. Respect. Andrew and Jean. This note obviously had no sentimental value to Bill and Sheila. The reason they've kept it and protected it 
is because it's one of the only pieces of physical evidence they've been able to get their hands on since Andrew's passing. It was found crumpled up in the trash can of his apartment. But to them, this once piece of garbage is significant and may even contain some clues around the events leading up to their son's death. One of the names in the note, D, whom the writing was addressed to, was unfamiliar to them. But the other name mentioned in the note, Jean, spelled J-E-A-N, they'd heard before. In fact, they'd just heard about him for the first time about a week before losing Andrew. It was a recent friend he'd made, a homeless man they gathered. This didn't surprise them, knowing their son. But he told them he had invited Gene to stay at his place until he could get back on his feet. And that part did take them by surprise. According to the walls, Andrew was a very private person. Sheila says the only people she'd known to step foot in his new apartment were her, Bill, and Andrew's two closest friends, Bree, who he'd known since childhood, and Davida, who he'd hit it off with in recent years, working together at La Rosa's Pizzeria. So the fact that he'd invited a practical stranger to stay with him was odd in a way. Though in the moment, she rationalized it. really liked him. He's like, Mom, he's such a nice guy. And he listened to him talk. And he said, you know, you're an old soul, and I really, really like you. And, you know, I think you're a great guy. And he thought he was making a friend. A lot of empathy. Yes. Oh, so much empathy. And kind of where it hurt him. Before Sheila could expand on that comment, we decided to pause things for a moment and move back upstairs for a more formal interview. Seated on their leather couches, circled in the living room, we go back in time, and I ask Bill and Sheila how they met. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist June Parker on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. So, Sheila and I met on a night going out to see music at a bar. We both love music. All her friends were my friends growing up. I don't know how we didn't run into each other before, but Sheila was out actually out on a date with someone else when we met. Um, her date was a friend of mine. He, he told Sheila how, how great of a guy I am, like the greatest guy ever. You got to meet this guy. He's the greatest guy ever. And uh, I actually drove Sheila home. Uh, and that was the end of their date. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty funny. But I told him, I'm like, 
I'm going to start dating Bill. He's like, I totally understand. He's a great guy. (laughs) Sheila was a stay-at-home mom for a long time before going on to do part-time elderly care. Bill, on the other hand, is a perfumist. First I've ever met. One of his greatest achievements was working on Downey's Unstoppables. You know, the little beads that freshen up your laundry. So you can thank him for the fresh aroma found in the green bottles. But Bill and Sheila fell fast in love and just as fast started a family. Sheila already had one one child, Jake, um, at that time. He was 18 months about. Ended up dating, getting married. Andrew came along shortly after that. I ended up adopting Jake. So it was the four of us for, for quite some time until I think what, they were about six and eight years old. And then we started foster care. Our first set of foster children were Shelby and Dalton. Like any foster child, Shelby and Dalton came from a broken home, and they experienced a difficult childhood as a result. Their father wasn't in the picture, and their mother suffered from addiction. But the foster care system eventually landed them exactly where they needed to be, and they were afforded the life and the love they so deserved. And we had them for two and a half years till... The state took custody from their mother, who was on drugs, and the state offered us first first dibs on adoption, um, which, of course, we couldn't say no. Um, they were our kids, and we were mom and dad to them, so. And if that's not wholesome enough? They were adopted on Andrew's birthday. Yeah. Which we forgot Andrew's birthday. Andrew's 10th birthday. <laughs> we forgot it. National Adoption it was, Day. Oh, yeah. Andrew would not let us live that down. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) The next couple weeks, Andrew got whatever he wanted. Yeah. So that was... We made up for it. Yeah. (laughs) As you've likely gathered, the Walls have built a beautiful life together. And looking at their family photos, I can confirm the beauty there as well. Andrew, tall and looming over the rest of the family, along with his father, but so approachable. With his signature dark shaggy hair, and a distinct, affiliative smile, a trait he also shared with his father. Unmistakably, a product of his parents. After all, he was the one child they shared together through blood. What about, um, let's take it back to as a kid, like, what was he like then? He was always tall, very smart, taught himself how to read, but he would sit and listen with me and Jake as we're doing the flashcards and, you know, sight words. And, you know, I, I walked past his bedroom and Andrew's sitting in his bedroom with a little book, reading it out loud. I'm like, he can, he can read. So he pretty much taught himself how to read and loved to play the piano. And we used to have a lake house. I liked to go fishing with his dad and being on the boat and tubing and just super sweet. He make friends with anybody and everybody, especially adults. Adored him because he was very um, intelligent and spoke like he was twenty, you know, and he, he was just a kid. So I, th- I feel like you've hit on some of these things, but I'd just be curious to hear, like, what were his best qualities? I would say empathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being able to to read people, see what they needed. He liked to enlighten and be enlightened. Everything he did, it was meant something deep. And he, he never did anything 
partway or his friendships like were so deep and you know his friend would call him and he'd be over there in a second no matter what and no questions asked just so sincere and cared just loved you to pieces and would do anything to make sure you're taken care of he was just such a blessing and greatly missed Andrew may be gone. No more concerts for the folks at the rehab home or 4 a.m. conversations in the kitchen over pizza rolls. He was their night owl. But Sheila doesn't take for granted the time they had together. She recognizes how fortunate of a parent she was, being able to spend a lot of time with Andrew growing up. And I was a stay-at-home mom so for 20 years, so that was really nice. Got to spend a lot of time with, with all of them, doing a lot of PTA, activities and involved in school because he insisted on public school. I was raised Catholic and I was afraid. <laughs> so I said, well, they're going to public. I'm going to be at school with them. I didn't realize, wow, that's a great world out there, the public school. And it was much better. He was right. I'm like, wow. <laughs> Until the bullying started. Until the bullying started. Yeah. Until now, it seems like Andrew had a pretty picturesque childhood, a close-knit family, a good head on his shoulders. And then came this mention from Sheila that Andrew had been bullied in the past. It took me by surprise. It's an unfortunate reality, but the truth is, no one is safe from bullying. Not even a person as caring and friendly as Andrew was. I knew from a previous conversation that Andrew had struggled with mental health in the past. But I was curious if it was in connection to the bullying. So you hit on something a minute ago, um, the bullying incident? Well... I didn't know anything was going on. He did not bring it to my attention. His grades were dropping, and he didn't want to go to school. And he was always straight A, very involved. And all of a sudden, it was he couldn't get out of bed. I called the counselor at school. Sheila contacted the school counselor to alert them of the situation, and it was their first time hearing that Andrew had been bullied. Of course, the school wouldn't be able to fix the situation. But shortly after this, Andrew was able to get into therapy. And over time, he started to open up about the trauma he faced. Um, they got him in the bathroom. I do know that. And his therapist told me he was assaulted. It was sad, and, and I, it had gotten really, really bad. It was social media, and it was them telling him to kill himself. And everybody wants him to die. Nobody wants him to live, and he's showing me, and nobody's doing anything about it. And it was so upsetting. And I said, what if we change schools? He said, Mom, it's on my phone. It's on social media. They'll follow me wherever I go. And he said, I'll, I'll just continue on. I'm just going to keep trying. And, and then trying to you know get medication to help. Oh, it's a full-time help. job. I mm-hmm. mean, yeah. I mean. But he found it. He found what he needed and was on that path. And I think he was really making an effort. As always, Andrew persevered, thanks in part to therapy. But I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the friends who stood by his side and helped him get through this tough time in his life. Those friends were Kelsey and Bree. He'd known them since grade school. But it was around this time that their friendships would blossom, eventually forming the group that called themselves the Three Musketeers. That's when he met Kelsey, his 
best friend. And then Kelsey was friends with Brianna, and that's how he met Brianna. But so he had developed a good, really good connection with her. And she helped him get through school. And he, Andrew and Bree remained best of friends through high school. And a few years after graduating, the two even lived in an apartment together for a short stint. But I'll let her tell that story when we hear from her. In the following years, Andrew lived what most would consider a fairly normal life. Working at the local pizza shop, hanging with friends, traveling, your average mid-20s stuff. But at age 25, he was hit with a bombshell, thyroid cancer, and it was spreading. The news came by total chance, through a scan for something unrelated. Crazy how that happens. And this devastating news would serve as another bump on his road of mental health. How could it not? He was just 25 years old. But he seemed to bounce back quickly yet again. Doctors eventually removed the cancer, and after some radiation, he was given a clean bill of health. During this time, Andrew found a psychiatrist he trusted. And with that, he got his life back on track. His next big move, now at age 26, an apartment. The first of his own. He found a a place in Price Hill in Cincinnati, overlooking the city, and lived there for a year. He was so proud of it. It was, oh my gosh, the view was amazing. One of the times he brought us up to the roof, he got the whole view. He's like, yeah, bring my chair up here and sit. But he was so proud and got his own furniture, you know, decorated his, you know, his own way. And But it was a rough neighborhood. It was, um, yeah. It yeah. was, he, he wanted to be next to people that needed help. This has become a recurring theme as I've spoken with the walls. Andrew was a helper, a caretaker. Whether it was his siblings, his classmates, or the coworker he literally gave the shirt off his back to when they spilled something on themselves. Andrew was always there when someone needed him. One of his greatest qualities, according to his parents. But from everything I've heard thus far, I fear it might have also been his Achilles heel. As we continue our conversation, Bill and Sheila begin to open up about the days leading up to Andrew's death. Admittedly, it's hard for them. Remember, we're only a few months removed here. You want to talk about that? You already? Sure. Mm-hmm. You start wherever you think, wherever you think that should start. Okay, well, a couple weeks before the holidays, he was here almost every day, which was wonderful. We were just playing cards and hanging out and talking, and it was really, really, really nice time. And um, we spent Christmas together, Christmas Eve. He spent the night here. They woke up, he and his sister, it's tradition, where they were both sleeping here, woke up, opened gifts, and making plans for Christmas Day, who's going when, where, and Andrew said, I'm going to run home, get a shower and change, and Dad will meet you at Grandpa's house at his father's. So when he had gone home, that's when he had met Gene for the first time, a homeless man at the gas station. And he was freezing because it was below zero at the time and told him he'd give him a place to stay if he needed a place to stay and that he would pick him up in the evening because he was spending the day with his family So just a quick recap. It's Christmas Day for the Wall family, 
They wake up, do their usual Christmas morning, and then the plan is to meet at Grandpa's house. But first, Andrew runs to his apartment to get ready. And during that trip, he meets a homeless man named Gene. Later, at the gathering is when Sheila learned of their encounter and that Andrew had promised Gene a place to stay for the night, which he desperately needed. So as the evening stretched on into night, eventually Andrew got a call from Gene. He wanted to be picked up. Gene called and he's like, yeah, he's mad. I was supposed to be there to pick him up. He's going to go sit on a bus because it's so cold. So we all said our goodbyes and I was standing in the kitchen there. He's walking out the door and I waved to him. I love you. Bye, Andrew. And that was the last time I saw him. I didn't hug him. Didn't know it'd be the last time I'd see him. Sheila doesn't recall feeling too concerned about it at the time. The walls admit they didn't always see eye to eye with Andrew when it came to his selflessness. But it's tough, as selflessness like this is a rare quality. Who do you know that would bump into a homeless person and offer them a bed in their apartment the same night? Heck, Andrew wasn't even known to do this. But then again, it wasn't technically out of character either. So after sharing their goodbyes on Christmas Day, evening technically, Andrew left to be with Gene for the night. And the Walls figured they'd speak with him sometime the next morning or afternoon. But as they waited to hear from him that next day, they'd end up receiving a different call regarding Andrew's credit card. The next day, there's some weird credit card activity. So we got an alert, a phone call. And and then I, I called Andrew and he answered. He didn't sound like himself, which was weird. It sounded kind of angry. Yeah. I mean, at first I thought he'd just woken up. He sounded agitated, I guess would be a way to describe it. Like he was pissed off about something. But then he was like, no, I... He didn't have any issues with the credit card. And I said, well, okay, just let me know if you hear or if you have any other issues with it. I, I told the credit card company that there was nothing to worry about. So that was on December 26th. It was very short, probably less than a minute call. And that was the last time that I talked to, to Andrew. I did tell him I loved him. He did sound like there was something off. To this day, Bill doesn't know what to make of that call to Andrew on the 26th. On one hand, a concerned credit card company checking in on some activity, all of which Andrew explains away, is pretty normal. On the other hand, Andrew's demeanor felt off, as Bill puts it. How off? He can't really say. It just didn't seem like typical Andrew. There's really no telling what was going on at this time between Andrew or Gene, or anyone else for that matter. But I don't at all question Bill's sense that something wasn't right. Because as the week between Christmas and New Year's continued, things would start to unravel. I always took off work between those two holidays. You know, the days go by quickly. It's like, you know, you put a text or call into Andrew every once in a while and don't hear anything back. And it's like, eh. Then you start to get anxious. Um, and then you call Brianna and Davida, you know, his friends that he he normally talks to. And, you know, by that time they hadn't heard anything either. Then you start getting the butterflies and it's like, okay, now now what? You know, you just have that nagging feeling in the back of your head saying, you know, this might not 
be okay. And when Davida couldn't get a hold of him, then I knew something was wrong. She said it's going straight to voicemail. It's not even ringing or making any other... Yeah, because it rang for a while. She's like, I even used my mom's phone to call him. Just if I was blocked or something and nothing. So it was either turned off or the battery was dead or... Yeah, but I could go on the credit card. A week passes with no word from Andrew. As you can imagine, Bill and Sheila are concerned at this point. January 3rd was Bill's first day back to work after the long holiday break. He made it to about noon and then left to check on Andrew at his apartment. When he arrived, he noticed that Andrew's car wasn't in the lot, but he knocked on the door anyways. No answer. So then Bill went up the street to a rehab center which Andrew had visited before thinking maybe he had some sort of mental break. But no sign of Andrew. At this point, Bill decides to call for a welfare check and then proceeds back to the apartment to meet the police. But before he gets there, he receives a panicked call from Sheila. Police are already at the apartment. Something has happened to Andrew. Bill arrives just minutes later. There's one policeman out in front of the door and the door was closed and he's on his phone, two feet away. And I'm standing there. And he looked straight at me, and then straight back down to his phone. And I stood there for probably two minutes. And until finally I said, um, excuse me. And he's yeah. like, yeah, are you the father? I'm like, are you that much of an asshole that, yeah. that you would do that? Mm-hmm. I mean, I basically had to piece together what was happening by like what they were saying to each other and... Agitated over the police's behavior at the scene and unable to get any answers to his burning questions, Bill instead resorted to eavesdropping, eventually picking up on a few details. Andrew had been found seated upright on his couch, dead from an apparent overdose. But all Bill could see at that moment was a giant red flag. And when he and Sheila were finally given access to the apartment, they discover even more. And all I kept saying was, his car is not here, so like, oh, it looks looks like it was natural. There's no signs of a struggle or anything. I'm like, his car's not here, you know. So something is askew. <laughs> Everything's gone. Paperwork, like title to his car, like everything, everything. Let me explain what Sheila means by everything. Pretty much anything of value was missing from his apartment. We'll go through the list in the next episode, but after noticing the potential signs of foul play, all Bill and Sheila wanted to know was when and how their son died, and ultimately, what the police were doing about it. Unfortunately, answers wouldn't be coming anytime soon. Bill and Sheila are admittedly underwhelmed with the Cincinnati Police Department and their handling of Andrew's case. They understand that Andrew isn't priority number one within the department. They get that. At this point, All they want is some assurance that his case is being treated with the same respect as any other case. I genuinely believe that they have been working hard, but in the end, it was like there were no answers to our questions, and they're just not providing anything that we can use. I don't understand why they can't call any of these people in, where they could easily say, we've talked to them, and this is their story, and we don't have any answers. At a minimum, that would be, it wouldn't be great, but it it would be something. I wouldn't say the police let us down, but 
they haven't done their job. Like, if these detectives can't communicate with us, find somebody in the department that can and come and lay it out. I mean, Brianna has to do the TikTok thing to get any kind of traction or attention. And then it's just, what does it take to put a fire under their feet? To the wall's relief, there'd be many revelations in the coming days. You see, that fire Bill just mentioned? Well, it turns out Andrew's friend Bree was already getting it started. Okay guys, here is the update for justice for Andrew Thomas Wall, AKA my best friend that passed away. Like I said in previous videos, it's going to be a long bumpy road. There are a lot of loose ends to this case that the detective is not taking seriously, but I digress. I've also just uncovered today that actually Gene has a record and is in the system, which is even more mind blowing that we are not getting anything out of this. The credit card transactions are severely triggering because you're telling me that there's not a single camera that has caught any of these transactions in downtown Cincinnati. Okay, I didn't plan to make an update, but here we are. I didn't anticipate this happening, but a reporter reached out and we gave him the full story. (laughs) The wheels are in motion. We are boosting Andrew Thomas Wall's story. We are boosting this story. Justice for Andrew Thomas Walls. Culpable Case Review is a production of Resonate Originals and Tenderfoot TV in partnership with Odyssey, written and hosted by me, Dennis Cooper. Executive producers are myself, Mark Mennery, Jacob Bozart, Donald Albright, and Payne Lindsay. Our senior producer is John Street. Additional production from Jamie Albright and Taylor Floyd. Editing, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Dayton Cole, Pat Kicklighter, and Adam Townsell of the Resonate Recordings team. If you have a podcast or are looking to start one, check us out at ResonateRecordings.com. Our theme song and original score is by Dirt Poor Robbins with additional scoring by Dayton Cole. Our cover art is by Drew Bardana. You can follow us on social media at Culpable Podcast. Additional content can be found on our website, CulpablePodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to tune in next week when we return with an all-new case. Till next time.